This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to become a lean entrepreneur and visionary leader. Why you should never, ever tell anyone to follow their passion. Why having a vision doesn't always mean you'll be successful. And how you can employ viability experiments like Wizard of Oz tests to confirm or deny that there's a market for your product. Here with us today, To discuss those topics and more is Brant Cooper, co-author of The Lean Entrepreneur, How Visionaries Create Products, Innovate with New Ventures, and Disrupt Markets. Brant is a lean startup thought leader who travels the world speaking to entrepreneurs at conferences, hackathons, workshops, and companies including Qualcomm, Intuit, Capital One, and Hewlett-Packard. His startup career includes stints at Tumbleweed, Timestamp, Wild Packets, Encode, and many others. He has more than 20 years of experience in IT and bringing technology products to market. He's also the author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, which has more than 50,000 copies in circulation. Welcome to the podcast, Brent. Thanks for having me, Will. Great to be here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to have you on. So you begin the book, Brent, by talking about the digitization of our society and the impact this has had on a number of industries. You say that the only way to thrive is to be a high-velocity organization, which has two parts to it. The first part, to continuously produce higher-quality products while increasing efficiency is well-known, while the second part is frequently forgotten. Could you give the second part of the definition and why it's vital to thriving as an organization? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a good question. I, I think it really gets back to why did you get into the business in the first place? And usually that's around uh, a skill set that you as an entrepreneur or you and your co-founders have. It's some insight or it's some ability. And it, it, it can be surprising what it is. It could be that you're you just know how to do consultative sales. You know how to naturally be empathetic. Uh, and, and know how to work with clients in order to solve problems, to even discover the problems and solve problems. And it's, it's similar to uh, Simon Sinek's why, if you've ever watched that amazing uh, TEDx uh, talk that Simon Sinek does. But there's some core reason why you're doing what you're doing. And that actually also can be continuously improved upon. And it's what we call in our book, The Shadow Force. And so it's, it's sort of what drives you to do the business that you're actually doing. In my view, you know, entrepreneurs that are successful aren't successful because they want to make money. They're successful because they want to provide value based upon some ability or, or strength or insight that they have. And oh, by the way, if you're successful at doing that, you also make money. But the driving force, this shadow force is this inner ability, this inner strength that you have. And you want to continuously improve on that shadow force. Similarly, 
in the way that you might improve a product or the processes to build a product. Okay, nice. And you discuss a dichotomy in the book between the lean startup method and the quote-unquote myth of the visionary, saying that only one of these can lead to huge, successful businesses. So can you describe the dichotomy between the two and why, they, and why the two things stand at odds with each other? Sure. So, so the myth of the visionary, you know, the visionary status is, is, a, is a story that we tell ourselves. It's, you know, actually where humans are wired to tell stories. So we look at the past and we connect facts uh, uh, by story, and it allows us actually to more efficiently store our memories. And this is sort of a, a known scientific fact. Um, and we'll completely invent the story that connects the facts. And so, in my view, the myth of the visionary is one of those stories. We look historically at the way, you know, Thomas Edison, quote unquote, invented the light bulb, or Henry Ford invented the automobile, or you know, Steve Jobs is usually held up in modern day as being this iconic visionary. Um, and Ross Perot even said this when he invested in Steve Jobs' uh, company that he formed after he left Apple called Next. And it was like, oh, you know, Steve Jobs, he's too poor to go to college and he's tinkering in his garage with computer chips. Uh, for some reason, it's always tinkering and it's always in a garage. And then his dad, <laughs> his dad comes in and says, you know, either find a job or build something that somebody wants. And within six weeks, Steve Jobs had built a, you know, a, a computer out of a wooden crate his dad made for him. I mean, it's just like it's pure fiction. None of it is true. And so I think that the people that, uh, that believe or, you know, sort of ingest, digest this, this story of the visionary believe that they have to go build the product that has, you know, sort of, they've ideated that's, you know, materialized in their gray matter. Oh, I must go build this product. And so therefore they think that the vision is the most important thing uh, in building a company. But there's really no startups or no businesses really that ended up the same way that they started. And so the way I like to put it is that true visionaries relentlessly pursue the change they want to see in the world, not how they're going to make that change. So Steve Jobs, when he went to go and form that second company, Next, that company failed. Oh, but he's a visionary. Why didn't he see it? Or the fact that to me the iPhone was, you know, completely disrupted the market, but it wasn't the technology as much as it was that they opened up the app store to third-party developers because that's what turned the smartphone into a platform. But Steve Jobs opposed opening up the app store to third-party developers. Oh, but he's a visionary. Why didn't he see it? He's a visionary because he didn't let the vision stand in the way to what the market was actually demanding. The market demanded that the App Store be uh, opened up to third-party developers, and, and Steve Jobs relented. He didn't let his vision actually cloud what was going to be revolutionary. And so I think that that's really what I'm getting at here is that you can actually kill your company because you have conviction around your idea. To me, that's you know, somebody's building a faith-based startup. Or inside the large enterprise, this happens all the time, right? Is that uh, product teams and innovation teams are forced to work on products that have just been ordained from higher up in the organization. And they literally spend tens of millions of dollars on these product ideas that fail miserably, right? And so the whole lean innovation side of things is 
No, forget that. It's great to have a change that we want to make or, or something, a, a hill that we want to conquer and you rally your troops around getting to that, that hill. That's important. Um, but you also have to listen to the market and you have to be willing to adapt and you have to be agile and fast moving in order to be the first ones you know, to, to conquer. Yeah, and, and on that line or along the line of you know, uh, product teams at large organizations working on what essentially will become zombie projects, there was a great statement in the book that caught my eye that I think is relevant here. A startup does not know what value it is creating or for whom. So at first glance, this seems counterintuitive to successful business practices, but why should this position be the case for startups and also for people that are creating products at large established organizations? Right. So if it was if it was if it's known, that means somebody else has already done it. So it really means that there's not an opportunity. And so whatever it is that you're differentiating, uh, going after a particular market, um, means that you know sort of by definition means that it's new and so it's unknown. So so this is sort of the way I look at the world and look at even my daily job. It's what's known, I can execute on what's known and what's unknown. I have to actually learn, I have to experiment on the unknown in, in order to move it over to the known side so I can execute. So if you build, uh, launch products and execute in the unknown side, you're essentially saying, listen, we're going to take one shot at it and we're going to go ahead and execute like we normally execute and we're going to go after this unknown market. We're going to take one shot at it, but if you actually run an if you do the experimentation method, then it's like no, we're going to start smaller and we're going to learn what is the value that that we believe our idea is actually creating for this market segment, and we're going to build a new business based upon learning before before executing, and and the same principles apply whether you're doing innovation inside of a large enterprise or whether you're you're a startup. Um, again, if you're actually going to go tackle an existing market then you just better have a lot of money to build a fully functional product and a lot of money to do marketing because you're fighting against established brands inside of a known market. And that's, that's really hard. It's not, it's not undoable, but it's really hard and takes a lot of money. Um, but so most startups are around, you know, we, we, we sort of lay out this innovation continuum where you've got on one side the known market, you do incremental innovation, sustaining innovation. It's really where big businesses live because they're executing in markets that they've already established. So they know how to build products. They know how to get feature requests. They know how to market. They know how to sell. They know how to distribute. They know what the back end op operations have to be. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the complete unknown. We're inventing new technology and now we need to bring that new technology to market. Nobody's ever seen it before. Right, so we don't know how to market it. We don't know how to sell it. We don't necessarily even know yet what what the problem it is that we're solving. And so it's very extreme on the unknown. Most companies, both startups and large enterprises, actually work inside that continuum. They're usually not on, uh, you know, completely on one end uh, or the other. Um, but what you want to try to do is figure out what is known, what has been validated in the market versus what is unknown, what is new. And, and then the business processes that you apply to those two different endpoints are different. Okay, got it. And one of the things that you write about in the book is the Three Horizons framework, which is a way for established organizations to incorporate startups or startup principles into normal business practices. Can you explain what the Three Horizons framework is? 
Sure, that was developed. I believe that was developed by uh, McKinsey, the consulting firm McKinsey in the in the uh, early '90s, and so it's it's evolved over time, and uh, and it's actually pretty cool the way it's being applied today. But originally, uh, there were considered three horizons, and horizon one was this core business. So it's really what I was talking about earlier in terms of the sustaining innovation side of the spectrum. It's the normal business practices that we do that generate the billions of dollars if you're a large enterprise. And then there's the horizon two, which are new ideas where their business model is being tested. So it's implied that there's already a market found. It may be a limited market uh, so far, but there is some sort of traction in the marketplace for new technology. And so you're essentially incubating these uh, these Horizon 2 teams. Um, you're not bringing them into the core business yet because the revenues that they are producing can never be uh, compared to the Horizon 1s. And so they get killed. And this is a classic thing that happens in large enterprises is there's, a, oh, God, you know, there's a little bit of traction on this idea. They get, it gets sucked into the core business and the salespeople don't want to sell it because they're not going to earn any commissions. The market... Marketing people don't want to market it because it doesn't fit in with the existing um, brand, and eventually the business unit uh, doesn't want to support because it's just not driving the P and L for that particular business unit, and they squash the idea even though that it even though it had some traction. And then you have the Horizon Three. Now, back in the early '90s, Horizon Three meant uh, really the scientists and the physicists and the engineers that are inventing new technology out in what I call the labs in the wilderness where they're producing all this amazing new technology, they've got all of their patents, but most of that technology never sees the light of day. Jeffrey Moore looked at these horizons and said, well, listen, you know, that kind of doesn't really work. You can't just throw technology over the transom to the core business or to even Horizon 2s and expect anybody to do anything with it. And so he started tinkering with the framework so that we had a methods of trying to marketize early on. So that becomes, the Horizon 3 becomes really more like a traditional startup. They're, it's a small team, cross-functional, and they're trying to figure out whether there's a market for this new uh, technology. Now you add Lean Startup to the Horizon, or Lean Innovation to the, uh, the Horizon planning, and that actually brings all of this to the next level because now we know that there are ways that we can measure learning. There's ways that we can measure progress on an idea without immediately looking towards return on investment. So when I'm doing keynotes, I, I, I sort of joke all the time, what are the two, two questions that kill breakthrough innovation inside of large enterprise? And the questions are, what's my return on investment and when am I going to see that return? And I know your audience has heard that a million times. And based upon how we structure companies that they need to maximize these quarterly earnings, they've got to go report to Wall Street. Um, this is what kills breakthrough innovation because breakthrough innovation doesn't happen on a quarterly basis. You actually have to let these ideas out into the marketplace and test and evolve them before you start looking at what the return on investment is. The Really, the return on investment by, is years down the road. And so if we start using the, uh, Eric Reese's Lean Startup uh, principles to understand how we can measure the progress of these Horizon 3s, these early stage startups, and then how we measure the progress when they become Horizon 2s and what do they need to accomplish before they're sucked into the core business of the Horizon 1s. And really, uh, uh, you know, I think Intuit has been 
sort of the leading example of companies applying this. And, you know, there's sort of these general rules that if you're inside management, you should maybe put 70% of your effort in Horizon 1 and invest 20% in your Horizon 2s and maybe 10% in your Horizon 3s. And there's different formulas like that based upon essentially, you know, how, how much of, of your industry is being disrupted. Um, but the key, I think the key takeaway from that is not the exact percentage, but in the fact that you actually have to invest in longer term innovation in order to save your company longer term. And one of the things that you write about to figure out whether or not those those ideas or those products are actually going to become something that bear fruit on down the line are viability experiments. So you, you write about a number of good viability experiments in the book, landing pages, concierge tests, Wizard of Oz tests, crowdfunding, and others. I've heard of most of them. Uh, are certain experiments better for certain situations? And what is a Wizard of Oz test? Yeah, so, so you know, really I throw those experiments out there just to try to get the creative juices going. So an experiment is anything where you're validating customer behavior rather than just doing what the customer says. The customer is, is customers are notoriously wrong at predicting their own future behavior. And I want to emphasize that this works in... B2B as much as it works in B2C, so business to business as well as business to consumer. And we use these processes across all industries from you know, GE and, and their, their uh, jet engines and their healthcare all the way over to you know, uh, mid-market tech companies like Edmunds.com. So I know that the first reaction often is, this stuff sounds great, but it doesn't work in our business model. But if you look at in terms of unknown or uncertainty, you can actually tackle uncertainty with running these type of experiments no matter the size of the business and no matter the industry the business is in. So what we try to do is lead uh, companies through the process of brainstorming assumptions. So what must be true for a solution to work? And then we can prioritize those assumptions as to being what is the riskiest of those assumptions. And then we can design an experiment um, that actually goes and tests the customer behavior versus that particular riskiest assumption. Um, and so it could be using you know, prototypes, it could be you know, sort of faking it before you make it, it could be going and doing observation first and then asking your customer why. There's just all sorts of things that we can do to get to the customer behavior. And the ones that you mentioned are, are sometimes they're digital product, uh, digital experiments, so getting people to react to landing pages or uh, pretending that the the product actually already exists, but then you provide the value by hand, and so that's the last one. That's what a Wizard of Oz e- experiment is. So it's sort of, you know, like Wizard of Oz. Ignore, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain, and it's because the customer thinks that they're interacting with a product, but really the technology hasn't been built yet. And behind the scenes, there are people that are working to fulfill the value that was promised when the person signed up for or, or uh, uh, experienced uh, that product. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a great way to test customer behavior. If they won't buy, use, get value from uh, your, your human ability to provide that value, then they're not going to do it just because there's been a bunch of code written, right? So obviously that doesn't apply to all business models. So the experiments do are going to be different based upon the business that you're in. Um, so Wizard of Oz won't always work. Landing page 
you can actually get a landing page experiment to work for just about anything, but it's not necessarily that uh, doesn't have that high degree of fidelity. So there's a, it limits the learning. Um, but the key is is like number one, customer behavior. We're trying to get customer behavior. Number two, uh, the customer has to pay some sort of currency. So if it's not money, it's time or their personal information or they're providing you data or they're you know they're sitting down with you and helping design something. I mean, so it's there's a there's a they're giving up something in order to give the get the value that you're promising them. And and the other thing is what is the key learning that you're trying to achieve? So you have to have a very concrete objective when you're going into designing and running these experiments. Right. But yeah, you, you can you can safely bet that if people won't give you their email address to, you know, get access to your product, they probably will not give you their money for that same product, right? And- Exactly right. Exactly right. So you know, if you if you post your value proposition up on a landing page and you and you uh, and you send that out to who you think your target audience is and, and nobody signs up, that's a pretty good signal that you know that you, <laughs> your idea is not as popular as you thought it was. Yeah. Okay. So let let me ask you about a statement that that I've heard from kind of thought leaders conflicting advice on. So Mark Cuban says, follow your passion is the worst advice you could ever give or get. And I've heard Tony Robbins saying pretty much the exact opposite. So where on the spectrum do you fall on on that statement that follow your passion is the worst advice you could ever give or get? Um, Well, so I'm I'm with Mark Cuban. So I'm wondering if Tony Robbins is talking, you know, is he talking to salespeople or is he talking to entrepreneurs? Because... I think that there's there's sort of a huge difference there. I, I think that um, so I'm passionate about sports. I, you know, the only way I get exercise is by chasing a ball. So you know, if you try to get me on an exercise machine, I'm gonna fail. But if you throw a tennis ball down the street, I actually might go chase it. So I'm I, I really am I'm passionate about that. But you know what? I'm not good enough to get paid for for uh, playing sports. I it's just fact of the matter. And I, I, I don't really sort of believe in the fact that if I worked hard enough, I could be an Olympic athlete. I think that's, you know, I think that's BS. So I think what Mark is getting at, the, the way I put it is it's very Zen, right? Is don't follow your passion, be passionate about what you do. So don't do what you're passionate, be passionate about what you what you do. And so if you go back to my, my comment that I think that true visionaries relentlessly pursue the change that they want to see in the world, um, you actually have to do some stuff that kind of sucks. That's actually you're not going to be passionate about. Are you going to do them anyway to make the change that you want to see? So I, I, I think that the I think that the I think people just have it a little bit wrong. I think that it, they should be focused on what is the change they want to see, and it could be a big change. It could be I want to go start up the world, you know, change the world, or it could be a small change. I want to, you know, I want to uh, supplement my revenue at home and and maybe. Because I do that, my family can I can take my family to Italy in the summer. I mean, it could be a small change, and I'm going to go start this online service because I just want to generate a little bit more revenue. That could be a small change, or it could be I want to work differently um, at, at my work, so I, I want to change my business a little bit. Or, or it could be that you're working in a large enterprise and you want to change the way the company works, and that's a little bit of a bigger change, right? So it, the size of the change is up to you. Um, your your ability to make that change depends on how committed you are to relentlessly pursuing that change. 
And so if you if you're relentlessly pursuing something and you run into something that you don't want to do and you're not passionate about it, so then you don't do it. Well, you're not going to make the change that you want to see. Um, so to me, it's it's like the you know the the it's very Zen Buddhist because it's really you know the person who's who's sweeping um, you know the deck. Um, because they're, I don't know, whatever reason, th- there's a larger thing that they're up to. Maybe they're going to throw a party. It's actually be passionate about sweeping while you're on the deck because it's got this larger purpose to you, which may be a small thing like throwing you know, a, a party that evening. But so that's really, it's being passionate about what you're doing in pursuit of the change that you want to see. Okay, nice. And I think we all know that businesses don't exist without customers or consumers, but what a lot of people don't know or realize is that businesses need to attract different kinds of customers at different stages of development, which you write about as as being called waves. So how do these waves of customers work, and is it possible for businesses to ensure that they're continually moving in? Yeah, so so part of it is the – so, you know, I'm – I'm helping an entrepreneur in Wisconsin. It's a startup entrepreneur. He's building a fashion app. It's uh, late summer, um, but it's not typical Wisconsin heat in the summer. It's actually a beautiful day. It's like a spring day, and the streets are just teeming with people. Kids coming, you know, uh, back for college. Wisconsin's a small college town. Great little downtown area. Helping this, in, I'm inside helping this entrepreneur uh, who's building this fashion app, and. and like I do with a lot of entrepreneurs, I ask him, how can I help you? What's your biggest obstacle to success? And he goes, I need a thousand customers. And I said, how many do you have? And he says, zero. And I said, you don't need a thousand, you need one. And he's just kind of staring blankly at me and I go, no, you know, look at all those people outside, get up, go outside, go, go find one. And again, he's kind of staring at me like, Really, this is all I'm going to get? This is my mentoring? And I'm all like, no, 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 seriously, get up. We're done. Go outside. Go find one customer that cares about your, your app. And so the first wave is not how am I going to go acquire a 1,000 customers. The first wave is how are you going to go find five people that care about what you're doing? And literally, you got to walk the streets. It's a, it's a feet on the street. It's boots on the ground exercise. And so – Entrepreneurs are way too willing or scared or whatever. They're way too willing to stay inside the building to try to figure out how am I going to go you know, get 1,000 customers when you can't get 1,000 if you can't get five. And so the first wave is really go out and find them. And, and it, the same thing happens with these large enterprises. Well, they're, we've got a million customers, so how am I going to do a new innovation or a new product for a million customers? You don't have to go and use your existing customers. Matter of fact, you shouldn't. Go find five of your customers. Go find five that are existing customers and five that aren't. You have to start small to go big. All big businesses started small by definition. You have to have five customers before you can find a thousand. And so that first wave is really just getting out and going and finding people that care about what it is that you're building. So the first exercise, you get those five. Now you're going after, okay, what are the patterns in those people that I've discovered that care? Are they all the same? Do they have the same pains and problems and passions? Or are they different? And I don't want people to think about it in terms of a a classic market segmentation. It's not about demographics. It's about people that share the same pain or problem or passion. 
Yeah, so you might find that there's two or three of those different market segments. And now you have to try to figure out, well, which are the ones that are going to pay me the most money? Which are my high value customers? And then you're going to say, okay, now I've defined, defined my market segment. And so your next wave is, how do I conquer that whole market segment? And that's a lot of work. And now you start having to look at your marketing funnel and, and are people passionate about the product? And, and where do these people hang out, you know, both online and offline? And then after that, it's like, okay, I've dominated this market segment. My next wave is, how do I get to the adjacent market segments? So what is, what's a market segment that's similar to the one that I already have, but not quite? So I have to expand my messaging or change my messaging or I have to add functionality to my product without killing the value that I'm providing my initial market segment. It's actually really difficult. Maybe it should be a separate product. And so there, the waves are, you know, how do I... How do I first get going? How do I discover my market segment? And then how do I discover my next market segment? And what needs to change about my company, um, my business model, into still acquiring these um, these these other market segments? Yeah, you know, that answer brings to mind a quote that I saw recently that's a, a little bit of a platitude and maybe an oversimplification, but it's that a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. The way you make it perfect is by getting it out there and learning, and then that's you can't you can't make perfect inside inside the building. And and what's interesting is that I think that you know with the influence of design thinking and and UX professionals and and agile development methodologies, the product side is actually kind of figuring that out. Um, so we still need to tackle the rest of the business model. It's the marketing and sales and operations and distribution. And we have to understand that those also must be learning exercises before we execute. And you can't just simply stay inside the building and come up with a perfect plan in the same way you can't stay inside the building and build a perfect product. We don't know until the market weighs in. So the sooner you get out into the market, the sooner you're going to figure out where the gaps are. Yeah, definitely. So, Brant, let me ask, uh, can you talk about the book briefly? Uh, forward by Eric Reese, great illustrations by at Fake Grimlock, quotes from Seth Godin and a number of, uh, of, of business visionaries. Uh, how long has the book been out? When can, where can people find it? Uh, and, uh, and, and why should they go out and buy it? Yeah, thanks, Will. So uh, we published that in, in uh, 2000. 13, early 2013, we're fortunate enough to hit the New York Times bestseller list. The book can be found, you know, obviously online at Amazon. Um, at this point, most likely it's not in your local bookstore, but if you go and you ask them, they certainly can order it. So it's, you know, it was published by Wiley, so it's available worldwide. Um, it's available in several languages. Um, it's, you know, to be honest, it's not a page turner. It can be a dense book because the, what my ambition is, what my objective is with this book is for both uh, startup entrepreneurs and small business owners as well as people inside of large established businesses, can they have a, a set of, of uh, you know, a framework for them to actually understand how they can start making a difference tomorrow. It isn't, it isn't fluffy, right? This is not an airport business book. This is this is how you actually go out and get it done, and uh, and so that's the objective of the book. Hopefully, I've um, I've hit it 
Um, we, I've got some tools available for people uh, on my company website, which is movestheneedle.com, that can you know, uh, greatly enhance how you actually put some of this stuff into practice. And so I encourage people to go, go there. Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm generally available and will respond to emails. So I'm happy to, uh, to hear feedback and, and answer questions for people. Okay, nice. Well, I'm holding a copy of the book in my hands. It's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful treatment inside and outside. And uh, as it says on the back cover, the lean entrepreneur shows you how to become a visionary. So Brant, thanks so much for coming on today and talking about some of the concepts in the book. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Brant Cooper, you can visit his website at marketbynumbers.com or follow him on Twitter at at Brant Cooper. If you'd like to learn more about The Lean Entrepreneur, you can visit its website at leanentrepreneur.co. There you can order your own copy of the book and check out the schedule to see if Brant will be coming soon to an event near you. You can also visit the website he mentioned, movestheneedle.com, to learn more about his lean startup consulting. Thanks once again to Brant Cooper for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Monica Phillips on the podcast to talk about the art of the launch. Among the topics we'll discuss with Monica are the importance of getting ideas off the page and into the real world, why the elevator pitch is not one size fits all, and the podcast she recently launched called Powerful Conversations. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.